Yle Podcast. This podcast series is based on my experiences while making the documentary film Who Was Felix Kirsten? The film is about Heinrich Himmler's mysterious personal doctor and the revelations that followed. The reason for making this podcast is that after finishing the documentary, well, suffice it to say that the Felix Kirsten story never really went away. Episode 11, Walter Schellenberg, a spy master. Finally, close to midnight, we arrived at our destination, an estate belonging to Kirsten. Here, we were supposed to await the visit by Himmler. That night, I was not able to sleep. Not because of the constant noise from the planes, but the tension at the thought of meeting with Himmler, the feeling that possibly the destiny of thousands of Jews were dependent on my words. Even though I knew that Himmler's reason for negotiating was the catastrophic war situation in Germany, still many important results could come out of these negotiations. I was especially concerned about the prisoners in the Ravensbrück camp, which was only 30 kilometers from the estate. That was how the representative of the Jewish World Congress, Norbert Masser, described his arrival on the 19th of April, 1945, to Felix Kirsten's farm to negotiate with Himmler about the release of Jewish prisoners from a nearby camp. He had flown from Stockholm, Sweden, with Felix Kirsten, through the warring land beneath them to Berlin Airport Tempelhof. During their trip to Kirsten's farm, he had seen endless lines of German refugees trying to escape from the Soviet forces to the west. Masser had to wait for Himmler, who was celebrating Adolf Hitler's birthday. During the waiting, he met Himmler's last chief of counterintelligence, Walter Schellenberg, who was probably behind this meeting as well. During the morning, I had extensive conversations with Schellenberg. I was surprised to see a good-looking young man with soft features and civilian clothing, not the hard Nazi type which I had expected. Okay. That was Schellenberg, a super-intelligent, good-mannered, clever, career-oriented young man who had reached his powerful position exceptionally fast. He knew that they did not have much to do anymore to save the country, but at least they could save their own necks and families. He knew how to act in this play, where he himself probably was also the puppet master running the show. To make his guest feel comfortable and to have a good impression of himself, he had changed his uniform to civilian clothing. Schellenberg was an interesting character, a mastermind of deceptions, a person who probably could influence Heinrich Himmler the most. He wanted to carve a separate peace with the Allies, with Himmler taking over for Hitler as head of the new German state. We can confidently say that this whole venture was set up by him. Of course, he was also mindful that by doing that, he was saving his own life, fully aware of his own value, or, if you will, the dowry he was bringing to the table. He knew all the economic and military secrets of the Reich, inside and out, as much as his superior Heinrich Himmler himself. At the same time, Schellenberg was also in charge of taking care of all the treasures looted from the national banks of the occupied territories. and. He was cognizant of the fact that he could probably use all those chips when the time came to negotiate for peace. So, 
for the meeting with the representative of the World Jewish Congress in Gutharzwalden. It was not proper to dress in Nazi uniform. Better pick something cozy and informal. Something which would reflect how innocent he was. Everyone present, even Norbert Masser, probably knew that Schellenberg was the one who really wielded influence and could push Himmler to make decisions. This stage was Schellenberg's. Of course, it was also Kersten's stage. But Masser didn't know that Kersten also had his SS uniform hanging in his wardrobe. That all the electricity they dared to use in Guthardsvalde was coming from the thick cable, which was going all the way to the bunker site behind the forest and the separate generators manned by the SS. Could they be the staff Wilhelm Wolf mentions in his book? Also in attendance was an older lady whom Wolf and Schellenberg had called Felix Kersten's sister. According to Felix Kersten's own story, she was the daughter of his landlord from 1923, the very one who took care of Kersten in those early years when Kersten fled Finland and arrived in Germany with little money and who helped him set up his massage practice and make inroads into the Berlin society. When did she become Kersten's sister? Or were she and Kersten really the closest of friends? A few months after the monumental meeting between Masur and Himmler, Elizabeth Lubin comes to Sweden, amongst other refugees, and telling Swedish authorities that she has a brother in Sweden, actually a foster brother, Felix Kersten. But Kersten must have been 25 years old when they first met in Berlin. Wasn't he a bit too old to become a foster brother? Werner Neuss assumes that Elisabeth Lubin might have been an older sister of Felix Huberti, Marie Margaret Huberti. But she was only one year older. Elisabeth Lubin was 12 years older. Or could she and Felix Huberti have been half-siblings, the result of a secret relationship Felix Huberti's father had with Elizabeth's mother, or Elizabeth's father with Huberti's mother? In that case, there would be a dead end for our research. There exists one photograph which validates the theory of them being sister and brother. In the photograph, from the 30s or so, they are standing behind the supposed father and mother of Felix Kersten from Estonia. In the image, both Felix and Elizabeth have close, similar features. Thick black hair, similar widow's peak in the hairline in the center of the forehead whereas none of the supposed parents exhibit that trait. Kersten and Lubin have similar eyes, chin, jaw. Boris Solomon tried to find out the background of Elizabeth Lubin. I have been in many archives in Berlin, and I have been in Leipzig, Landesarchiv, and in Halle. And from the Landesarchiv in Berlin, I received a document which proves that she was born in Berlin. And I received date of her birth and information about her parents. And for me, uh, it is quite obvious that she is not relative of Kersten. And then uh, I initiated a query 
to Stockholm to the Swedish uh, National Archives. Archives. Archive, yeah. There uh, it was said that she arrived uh, via uh, Flensburg to Stockholm and in the interrogation protocol of the Swedish state police it was said that she worked as a housekeeper for Felix Kersten and she told the officer that Kersten is her foster brother. So we have proof that she is not biological related to Kersten. But the reason how it comes to the connection between Kersten and Elisabeth Lüben, it's totally open. So it's a kind of a dead end which we have there. That seemed to be a dead end. Even the family members of Kirsten didn't know the origin of Elizabeth Lubin. What they do know, or remember, is that they were extremely close, and that Elizabeth wrote all the letters and transcribed all the diaries which are now available in the Institut für Zeitgesicht in Munich. Also, she was probably the one who wrote the infamous so-called Bernadotte letter, typed on the same typewriter. Arno Kersten told that they were feverishly engaged in writing all the time. And there is a lot of that material, confusing the researchers. I don't think that it actually leads us to the question that we were trying to find out, which is, of course, is uh, who is Felix Kersten? Is he Felix Kersten Kersten or is he Felix Huberti somehow? <laughs> so... Uh, <laughs> But being a foster brother and uh, and so on, that uh, that makes sense, of course, with their uh, the connections that they have had for so many years, going back to his initial um, appearance in uh, Berlin in the twenties. But she was actually the right hand of Felix Kersten. She operated yeah. as uh, the yeah. right hand. And she lived in Harzwalde together with Kersten, and Kersten received in Harzwalde high-ranked uh, SS officers, and as a housekeeper, she must have been aware in which kind of circles Kersten was operating, and she gave the Swedish police Lebenslauf, a curriculum vitae. Yeah. In this paper, she said that she was from 40 to 45, working as a housekeeper. And then, this is amazing, she said in 45, she escaped from Nazi Germany. <laughs> it's unbelievable. She escaped from Nazi Germany and uh, was brought with help of the Swedish Red Cross to Sweden. Let me just uh, sort of kind of just throw in. So what, what Boris just shared with us, uh, I wonder if Elizabeth Lüben was actually on the same Swedish trucks going from uh, Harzwalde to uh, Lübeck. It's possible, yeah. Yeah. Let's go back to Schellenberg. Schellenberg, as well as Kersten and Himmler, wanted first and foremost to save their own necks with the welfare of Germany a close second. Schellenberg was now drawing out all cards available to him, and every now and then asking Wilhelm Wolff to make some charts predicting whether certain moments were supporting certain moves. One of Schellenberg's trump cards was the cousin of the King of Sweden, Count Folk Bernadotte. 
Bernadotte was running the rescue operation in Neuengam and Ravensbrück. The situation was chaotic. The German side did not have trucks, but the Swedes and the Danes had lots of them. The Soviet forces were approaching, and it was soon high time to evacuate from Berlin and or Gutholzwalde. First to Lübeck, and then further up to Flensburg, which became the new seat of the remaining Nazi government. Norbert Masser heard bombs exploding nearby. One huge explosion shook Gutharzfeld's main building. Himmler came later in the night, and the negotiations about rescuing the Jews began. Schellenberg and Himmler had already negotiated with Volk Bernadotte about certain numbers. They would go on to continue the negotiations the following day with the Count. The most important thing for Himmler, Kirsten, Schellenberg, and the whole staff of Himmler was to show goodwill to the Western world. Therefore, it was also important to meet the representative of the World Jewish Congress. Walter Schellenberg had been a young careerist, if we can say so, who was originally a lawyer and joined the SS in the early 30s and managed to forge ahead rather quickly, ultimately climbing to the rank of a general at the tender age of 32. He wrote that he was actually recruited by two Siegerheitsdienst agents who were on the college faculty and who also advised him to join the civil service. After graduating, he joined the SS in 1933. While educated as a lawyer, Schellenberg distrusted administrative attorneys and was intent on ensuring that the SD could operate outside the constraints of the normal law. Subscribing to the Führer Prinzip, Schellenberg also thought Hitler's directives were beyond the framework of the legal system and believed it was best to unquestioningly carry out anything ordered by the Nazi leader. For him, the SS represented the best there was available for him in the system. In his memoirs, he tells that he and certain SS comrades started to question the result of the war already after the terrible setback in Stalingrad in 1942. In 1943, Felix Kersten was sent to Stockholm to set up base, and indeed, he was quite quickly contacted by several Allied agents, including, among others, Abraham Hewitt, whom we already met before in this story. First, Kersten made contact with Hewitt and followed up later with Schellenberg. That procedure was transparent, and time was certainly not on their side. Schellenberg was special in many ways, he was known and appreciated among his enemies. In the world of spies, he was coming from outside the system. And as a careerist, he probably had plenty of enemies amongst the other Nazis. He really was a pedant. Still available on the internet is a book based on his research, Invasion 1940, The Nazi Invasion Plan for Britain by SS General Walter Schellenberg. It's a secret handbook to be distributed to the occupation forces. The book offered an astonishing insight into exactly how the Nazis perceived Britain and her empire, offering detailed analyses of the political and economic structure of the country, with chapters covering everything from parliament and public schools to Freemasonry and the Boy Scouts. The chapter on British intelligence was considered so embarrassingly accurate, it tells quite a lot about what kind of character Schellenberg was. He was also, at the same time, trying to invent new ways of spying. A double agent is still a simple form of spying. That's somebody pretending to be spying on A for B 
is actually spying on B for A. Got it? But Schellenberg was asking the following. Could there be a triple agent? An agent spying on B for A is actually working with full understatement as a double agent for B and spying on A for them, but in the end is actually loyal to B. Or, I'm not sure if the sequence is right, but anyhow, you get the idea. What we know now is that Schellenberg had also had a hand in all the stolen properties taken from the occupied territories. If Gutharzfalde was playing some strange role in all of this, Schellenberg must have been there in the background as well, stirring the cauldron. Was there something more going on than meets the eye? No one, I mean none of those characters, Kirsten or Schellenberg, have provided a single mention or reference to the huge bunker site inside the forests of Gutharzfalde. There had been a mention of an ammunition storage somewhere there, but having an ammunition storage somewhere on private property, that doesn't make much sense. Schellenberg's grandson, Leo Koenig, recounts on YouTube that when his grandfather died in 1948, some European Windsor royals from Britain and Bernadotte from Sweden continued to take care economically of Schellenberg's family, and that the support of the family dates to soon after the war. He said that the connection between the houses of Windsor and Bernadotte lasted the rest of her grandmother's life, who visited Bernadotte's every now and then. Isn't that interesting? We also know that when Folke Bernadotte published his book about the white bus's operation in July of 1945, it was largely dictated by Walter Schellenberg, who was also hiding from allied forces in Bernadotte's estate. The book was published only three months after the operation. The podcast is directed and realized by Arto Koskinen. Written by Arto Koskinen and John Bernstein. The voiceover of Arto Koskinen is dramatized by Trent Pansy. Sound design and music is made by Kimmo Vantinen.